Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by The Photographer's Ephemeris, the app that lets you plan your photography according to the sun and moon. We'll tell you more about The Photographer's Ephemeris later in the show, and we'll have some promo codes to give away. We'll tell you about that later. This is episode number 14. It's nice to have you back again, listening to us, downloading us, putting us at the top of the queue in your podcast player. This week, we're very happy to welcome photographer, podcaster, and author Chris Marquardt. Chris, hi. Nice to have you on the show. Very happy to be here. Chris is a seasoned podcaster. He's been podcasting since 2005. I'll just mention very quickly the two podcasts of yours that I listen to regularly, Photography Tips from the Top Floor and The Future of Photography. There is another one called Curiously Polar, and then you do four podcasts in German because you are German. There'll be a link in the show notes to the page listing all your podcasts. You are obviously also a photographer and a writer, and we've invited you on the show to talk about your new book, Wide Angle Photography, that is just out from Rocky Nook Press. So here's my story. I've gone through a couple of different cameras, and a few months ago, I decided to buy a Fujifilm X-Pro2. I had the X100F, but I wanted a camera with interchangeable lenses. A camera store online where I buy things regularly had an offer with the X-Pro2 and the 18mm F2 lens for free. Now, that's a 400-pound lens, and I couldn't turn down that offer, so I bought it. And when I put that lens on my camera, I realized that I didn't know how to shoot with it. I've, I'm a prime lens guy. I use 35mm, 50mm focal length. That's what I'm comfortable with. I've never bought a big zoom, you know, a big telephoto, anything like that. So I quickly realized that there were all sorts of compositional things that I just didn't understand. The placement of objects, how to deal with depth and field, etc. And after a couple months, I started looking around on the internet for resources. And you find some YouTube videos, and they're not very good. And then I saw that your book was coming out, and I thought, this is such great timing. What prompted you to write this book? Because it, it actually seems like there are no other books about the techniques of using a wide-angle lens. Well, it's a it's a it's a, it's a long and it, uh, kind of interesting story because I came back in two thousand nine. I rediscovered film photography, and I started um, well mainly because that allowed me to shoot medium format, which. I could never afford doing digitally. And I, back then, when all the studio photographers were shooting medium formats, that, that was co completely outside of my reach. But then when um, everything went digital, a lot of these cameras uh, went showed up on, on eBay and so on. So I ended up getting uh, a Mamiya, a 645. And, and that's when I started realizing how focal lengths and medium sizes, sensor sizes, film sizes kind of are really interlinked. And then the next step was, of course, that wasn't enough. So I went into large format photography, 4x5, and that, again, changed everything because in 4x5, all of a sudden, your 90 millimeter lens is a wide angle lens. So it com completely changes that field. And if you go 8x10, um, you have a, what is a 50 millimeter lens on your full frame digital camera is a 320 millimeter lens on an 8x10. So you end up having this weird relation between sensor sizes, between uh, focal lengths. Film size. Yeah, or, or film size. And then in addition to that, the whole topic of large format photography, you know, wh where you can correct perspectives, where you can change the, 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 the way the lens relates to the background you can shift it up and down left and right and this is pretty much where tilt shift lens comes from 
So that brought me back to digital and I got my hand on a tilt shift lens and that, well, which, which initially ended up sitting just on a shelf for half a year. And then after a while, I started getting the hang of it because of large format photography and I got more comfortable using it. And, and that was a 24 millimeter tilt shift. That was my first, my first prime a wide angle lens pretty much with the addition of being able to tilt and shift. And I ended up using that more and more just to practice. And at one point I ended up um, going on a photo tour, which I do a few times a year. And I decided on a whim to just take that one lens. Where was this tour? Um, that was in the Himal Himalayas. That was on a, on a, a trek up to Mount Everest base camp. Well, you wanted to keep your pack as light as possible, so you just take one lens. That's what I usually <laughs> try. <laughs> but no, I, my understanding was, I mean, you, if you want to really understand something, really thoroughly understand something, you have to jump in, in the deep end. You can't have a way out. You have to force yourself into using that and nothing but that for a while. And, and search for the solutions yourself and try and figure out and try and understand what's happening. Exactly. And, and being out there for two weeks with just that one lens, I definitely got as I definitely didn't get certain shots because it's not a 200 millimeter lens, but I ended up being, having to become creative, walking more, moving, changing my, 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 uh, my point of view, walking closer to things or walking away. Zooming with your feet, as we say. Zoom, the sneaker zoom. Yeah. Yes. I end, I ended up having to think much harder about how do I incorporate the background in there? Because with the wide angle lens, as you experienced yourself, there's an awful lot in your photos. So you have to learn how to place things, where to place things, uh, or how to make sure certain things are not in the photo. That might be distraction. You also deal with a lot more uh, depth of field, though the wider angle you are. So if if you compare that with a, with a portrait focal length, let's say 80 millimeters, you're shooting a portrait, it's very easy to blur out the background to make that stuff in the background into this uh, into this cloud of colors. But the moment you go wide angle, well, the background is sharper and you have all the detail, which might be distracting. So you end up having, you have, you have to do something about it. And that, that crash course, pretty much uh, learning to swim in, in cold water for two weeks was the thing that helped me deeply understand the, the wide angle, the whole wide angle thing. And I, yeah, haven't let go from that since. And then. The opportunity came up to do a book about it. A quick definition. I mentioned earlier that I bought an 18 millimeter lens, but because of the crop factor of the sensor, this is a 27 millimeter equivalent when we talk about 35 millimeter equivalent lenses. And this can all get very confusing. That's very confusing. <laughs> so let's try to, to make a ground rule in the podcast to talk in 35 millimeter equivalent instead of like the APS-C crop factor or the micro four thirds, et cetera, because people will get confused. I, I think one one thing we have to clarify this point, uh, especially for those who haven't really looked that deep into it, is that the the focal length of a lens doesn't change if you put it on a different camera. Your 50 millimeter lens on your full frame camera is also a 50 millimeter lens on an APS-C camera. So the, the focal length is exactly the same. The only thing that changes is that the camera with a smaller sensor just sees less of that picture. 
which right. changes the angle of view, the angle of the picture. It, it's the amount of it's the, it's the size of that rectangle in the circle of light that is smaller, which is what changes it. So exactly. in, in shorthand, we say that the focal length is different, but what it is, is it's more that the relative focal length is different. It, it looks like a different focal length. The angle, the angle is that of a different focal length, yeah. Right. It does get confusing. It does, yeah. <laughs> so where do you define wide angle? At what point do we talk about a wide angle for you? Well, the, the, the middle ground is, is the 50 millimeter. Well, to be more precise, it's like 43 millimeters, but let's say 50 millimeters because that's what you can buy. The 51.8 is, is the, 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 what we call a normal lens. Um, and then everything that is shorter, everything that has a smaller number, uh, in millimeters is by definition a wide angle, but it starts like mild wide angle. I wouldn't call a 40 millimeter wide angle, but then when it gets, goes to 30 millimeters, that is kind of wide angle. Yeah. For, for me, it's less than 35. Th 35 is still, a lot of people use 35 for street photography because it gives you a lot of space, but it doesn't distort too much. For me, it's when you get below about 30. So mine being a 27 equivalent there, I can really see the difference. Definitely. And uh, the 35 is wide-angle-ish. And then 24 is kind of where I'm really at home. And then everything beyond that, let's say 18 millimeters, 14 millimeters, that goes into the super wide angle. And then, and then at the very end of that, that's when you start getting distortions in the image circle. And then you, you have the, the, the fisheye lenses pretty much. And the fisheye can be interesting, but oh yeah, only if used in moderation. That's exactly right. <laughs> if you overdo it, it's it gets it gets old pretty quickly. So people tend to think that certain types of lenses can only be used for certain types of photographs, but you don't seem to believe that. You talk about landscapes, architecture, street photography, portraits, all types of photographs with wide angles. And, and I think it's a mistake when people say, well, if you're going to do a portrait, you have to have an 80 or 90 millimeter lens. You can certainly do portraits with any focal length. You can do landscapes with zoom lenses and landscapes with wide angles. But wide angles introduce all sorts of different variables. Can you just go over some of them for us? You talked about depth of field. Depth of field is much sharper with a wide angle. Well, there are there are um, things that will change just the moment you go wide angle. And uh, one is, for example, how do lines uh, behave in in a photo? Um, when you look at at a professional architectural photography, you will see that an architectural photographer is always trying to keep the verticals parallel to each other. And uh, the with a telephoto lens, you you can tilt it up and down and it'll still be kind of uh, parallel. But the moment you are in the wide angle field, just a slight tilt of the camera will make those lines go wonky. They will converge and you, you'll get what we call falling lines. So that's one of the things that changes and that can help. Well, that, that can turn a picture into uh, a bit of an, a bit of a, not so tidy picture versus one that is very clean and very well composed. Um, and uh, in portraiture, I mean, especially portraiture, street photography, which are two of the, of the areas that I talk about in the book. Um, you'll also have to think about how does a wide angle deal with depth in a photo? And what I mean is, um, how, how, okay, let me <laughs> step back foreground, middle ground, background. You have pretty much in, in wide angle photography, you will always think, especially when, when you do landscapes, you always think in these terms and different layers in the photo. Um, and the smaller the thing that you want to get on your photo, I mean, landscape, that might be a mountain, that might be a huge field, that might be massive trees. 
Um, but a portrait is a person is much smaller than that. So you have to go, go much, much closer. And the closer you go, the more the distance, the perceived distance between foreground, middle ground and background gets. So it stretches it out into the depth. So what, what you're looking at with a wide angle portrait, if you fill the frame with a face, with a 24 millimeter lens, you will have a big nose and ears that are very small because it stretches it out. So that looks unnatural. If that's the effect you're going for, fine, but usually it isn't. So you have to be very cautious about the distances of your subject that you, that you use when you do this kind of photography. So don't get too close, which will then in wide angle also leads to more negative space in the photo, more space that is not your subject. So you will have the background much more prominent, which then kind of requires you to, again, be very cautious about what's going on in the background because you want your your subject to be the subject. You don't want any competing subjects in the photo that will take away, away attention from your subject. And plus, the background is going to be sharper with a wide-angle lens. And that. So you won't have that background blur that just makes it fade away into nothingness. Yep. You need to actually consider that people are going to see what's behind the subject in those cases. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, depending on the lens and uh, and the setting, you might have the background as sharp as your subject. So uh, the background becomes part of the picture, and that makes it really important to 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 be aware what's going on behind the subject and maybe uh, work really hard to kind of leave things out that might not be helpful to the picture. Well, what's really interesting in discussing wide-angle lenses, and you have a chapter in your book called What Are Wide Angles All About?, is that we actually do need to think a lot more carefully about what we're seeing and how we see things because the distances look different, angles look different, there's one pair of pictures in the book where you show a coffee cup and in the center of the lens, it's circular, but in the side of the lens, it's distorted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With a lens of that focal length, your 24, my 27, it's actually pretty easy to see distortion when you're up very close to something. So to me, this is like learning photography again in some ways. It is. It is. And especially the distortion. I mean, you can you can use that to your advantage. If you, let's say you, you have someone with very short legs and you want to make them a bit bigger or a bit longer, <laughs> you, you can place those legs at the edge of a wide angle lens and stretch them out this way. But then if you take a portrait with someone uh, on the side of a 15 millimeter or 16 millimeter, uh, they might have a chin that's as big as their forehead. You know, it, it could possibly be disastrous. So um, you have to take a lot more things into account when you go wide angle. I've read recently that a lot of people are looking into plastic surgery because they take selfies of themselves, which with smartphones are relatively wide angle lenses and it makes their noses big and they think their noses look too big. <laughs> so they want to get their noses reduced so they look better in selfies. <laughs> Here, here's a, this is the thing. I'll put a link in the show notes. There have been articles about this recently. Uh, here's an interesting thing when it comes to the self, the whole selfie topic. Um, you know how people say that, uh, that the camera adds 10 pounds? Now, here, here's one reason why, and everyone can do this at home in front of the next mirror. Just stand in front of a mirror, like your bathroom mirror, and go very close. And then step back two or three steps and watch how your face becomes wider, how the distance between your ears and your nose tends to kind of come together. The closer you go, the more stretched... This is the same thing with a wide-angle lens. You're going close and you pretty much... You are a wide angle at that point and you look, well, your nose is in relation to the rest of your head. Your nose is bigger, but you also look slimmer because it stretches your head out front to back. And if you go back a few steps and then 
look at your face, you'll you'll just look a bit more a bit more your face will look a bit more full interesting it it is interesting the whole optical thing and it, you know i think a lot of people they buy a camera with a kit lens and it goes to from wide to short telephoto and they probably take most of their photos in the middle or at the at the 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 highest focal length the longest focal length because they want to see things far away. You know, when when I when I look at my zoom lenses and I go through my Lightroom catalog, and you know how you can sort by by focal lengths, and you can have all the all the. But so so what I what I did once is I went to um to to filter just by one lens and then look at what focal lengths I was using this mostly, and I rarely ever used it in the middle. It was always at the extremes, which is interesting because. Uh, or mostly at the extremes, and it's inter interesting because these lenses, and I would think most people are that way. Um, the 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 problem with the zoom lenses is they are optically best in the middle. They are worst at the extremes. So so if you if you always shoot your your sixteen to thirty five at sixteen millimeters, um, you might as well get yourself a sixteen millimeter prime and have the much much better image quality. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Chris Marquardt about his book, Wide Angle Photography. When you're shooting landscape photography, it's all about the light. You want to be in the right place when the sun is in the right position. The Photographer's Ephemeris is an app that helps you plan outdoor photography in natural light. You can see how the light will fall on the land, day or night, at your current location or at any location on the planet. The Photographer's Ephemeris 3D gives you a 3D model of the terrain. It shows you exactly how the sun, moon, stars, and Milky Way are positioned relative to mountaintops and valley floors where you're shooting. You can interact with a rich simulation of sunlight, moonlight, and starlight set against the actual topography of your shooting location. Plan your photo shots in advance and save up to 33% when you buy the Photo Planning Tools bundle on the App Store. This contains the Photographer's Ephemeris, the Photographer's Ephemeris 3D, and the Photographer's Transit, a map-based field-of-view planning app. The Photographer's Ephemeris and its related apps help you take the best photos at the right times. It is also available for Android, and there's even a web version. Visit photoephemeris.com, that's photoephemeris in one word, .com, or use the link in the show notes. I want to tell you that we're giving away promo codes for each of the three apps, the Photographer's Ephemeris, the Photographer's Ephemeris 3D, and the Photographer's Transit. We'll pick at random from all those subscribed to the Photoactive mailing list. You can subscribe by going to photoactive.co, that's photoactive.co. Enter your email address to get the latest info about the Photoactive podcast and be automatically entered in all future prize drawings. If you've already signed up for the mailing list, you're already entered. Thanks to the Photographer's Ephemeris for making these great prizes available to our listeners. So there are different types of photography, and street photography is one that has become quite popular these days. And I will admit that as much as I do like the great classic street photographers, you know, early Joel Meyerowitz, Gary Winogrand, people like that, I'm left a little uninterested by a lot of the street photography I see published on Instagram and other places like that. But one thing about street photography, if you're using a wide-angle lens, you have to get really close to people. And... Isn't that difficult for street photography? I, I, the street photographers always say they prefer wide angles because you do get that expansive view of the street and the buildings and all that. But you have to get so much closer to people that that makes it more difficult, doesn't it? Well, if you if you uh, if you read, there's a there's a New York Times interview with um, 
with um, Henri Cartier-Bresson, who is kind of the one of the pioneers of the whole street photography genre. Um, he was he hated the 35 millimeter. He was a 50 millimeter guy. Uh, he says he says that 35 makes everything way too exaggerated. So it was way too wide angle for him. So he's more of a on the 50 millimeter side. Uh, I personally, I will do street photography with 24 millimeters, but I won't go too close. What I try is to find compositions that leave enough space around the subject. So the subject, I mean, you can't do this at Times Square in New York. It's impossible because there are too many people. But if you find a place, and that's how many street photographers operate, you find a place, you find a background that looks really well and that needs just a person in there to to really work. And then you camp out there for 10 minutes and wait for that person to walk into the shot. Uh, that's how many street photographers work. And I try to do that same thing. I try to not to to not walk right in front of that person. Um, I I'm trying. It to, can be aggressive. Well, in some photography, it is it is okay. I think it makes it stronger. It makes it more powerful if you get close. Well, for the photographer, but not always for the subject. Well, it depends on where and depends on the kind of photography and the kind of event you're at. I mean, if it's a parade True. or something, and you have the chance to get right in there. Uh, then that's what you should do because that will give you very powerful pictures. They will look very different than photos taken from across the street with a 500 millimeter lens. I noticed that you have examples in your book of some wide angle shots that are in portrait orientation. I'm looking at this, this really interesting one of a woman carrying her child that's at like a, an extreme angle. It's really dynamic. It's it's really vibrant. And a very close one as, as, as well. It's yeah. very close. Also a yeah. very close one. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they think of wide angle, they're they're thinking horizontally. They're thinking of that expanse, that that horizon line. And so, if someone is is working in a portrait orientation, like like what is the appeal there, and how do you have to 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 shift your view to compose for that? Uh, well, I think it's kind of natural to to first go left to right to go wide because that's how our eyes are are placed. We have a, our vision, uh, our angle of view is about 180 degrees uh, in the horizontal. Um, but uh, one of my teachers once told me. If you haven't taken the photo the other way, then you haven't really taken the photo yet. Always take that. If you, if shooting, if you're shooting wide, if you're shooting a uh, landscape format, always make sure to also shoot a couple of frames in portrait, in portrait uh, orientation and vice versa. And I've often found that to be super useful because it, in the end, if you want to use a photo, like for this book, for example, uh, you might be looking for exactly that kind of an aspect ratio. And if it might not fit any other way. Uh, so I kind of got, got used to adding that in just as a safety. And I often find the vertical photos, the portrait format photos to be a bit stronger because they are kind of outside what we're used to. I mean, our screens are wider than high. Um, but then on the other hand, if you watch a portrait mode photo on a, on a smartphone, hey, it's the perfect orientation for that. So, um, I find it, I find it really useful and it, it changes that whole look a bit. Initially, we, um, when, when the book was, was kind of planned, we were looking at the format to go for. Should it be a super wide format? Should it be? And then we ended up with this kind of in the middle format, this kind of normal book format, because, uh, there are these uh, both kinds of orientations in there. 
more wide than higher ones, but um, I'd say probably well, I didn't count them, but I'd guess maybe two thirds to one third. It's interesting because in landscape photography, you often see photographs in portrait mode because photographers do like to emphasize the amount of depth and distance that they can get. And you can do this with uh, with having a prominent foreground, yes. Uh, exactly. On the other hand, and Jeff and I were talking before the show, one thing that really annoys me is someone doing a wide-angle shot in portrait, and they're taking a picture of a castle up on a cliff, and in the foreground are these huge rocks that they've just put there so they can sort of show that there's space. And, and I just find that unattractive compositionally. I mean, there are times when you have a foreground that should lead forward, but not like a lump in the middle of a picture. <laughs> and and I will say, none of the none of your pictures in the book are like that. All of yours that have foregrounds like that do have, I would say, interesting foregrounds without trying to overpower by becoming the subject. Well, that's that's, but that's always difficult, and that's what you kind of have to to practice. I mean. Um, I will not show you all the photos in my library that are, that are the, the ones that you just described, um, because there is certainly enough of that in there. I've just over time learned to either not take those anymore or to, to edit myself and to not show them, to leave them in the drawer. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's as important as taking the picture. And I also have to say, when I'm out there, I, I often don't know which of the two shots, the vertical and the horizontal one, works better. So I take both because I'm I'm hedging my bets. I know I know back home when I look at them, I I have so often looked at my photos and and went, oh, I didn't think this would work, but I'm so glad I took it. That's interesting. On a recent episode, we talked about aspect ratios, and I have cameras that shoot in a three-two format, and I like that format in landscape. But I abhor that format in portrait mode. It's too narrow for me. Mm -hmm. So I would need a 3-4 or even a 4-5 to be comfortable in portrait mode. I just can't use the same aspect ratio. This might just be my personal OCD or just <laughs> something that when I was a child, someone showed me a picture in portrait mode and it scared me or something. Um, but for me, particularly a landscape shot, you need more width than the 2-3 when you're in portrait mode. Yeah, I I'm 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 a bit um agnostic when it comes to uh, aspect ratios. I mean, oh, my my DSLR gives me 2 by 3. Um my Mamiya 645 is also 2 by 3 ratio. I shoot with several film cameras that shoot square. Um I have shot with like super wide cameras and um what I end up doing I will, I will normally, I will usually compose for the aspect ratio I'm shooting with because I'm also stingy. I want to use every single pixel if I can. Um, but then I'm not opposed to coming home and it, when I edit in Lightroom and I, and I look at it and say, okay, this doesn't work to just crop it so it works. And that then doesn't have to be a three by two or a four by three could as well be a 5.3 by 1.8 if that works for the shot. Oh, I hate that. I'm yeah, that's, <laughs> I hate that. I, I just I just have these these images and these these relationships in my mind of height and and width 
and and I just can't do that. I can't. But that, that's that's another topic. Um, <laughs> I would I would rather have someone cut a, a cut a custom mat for me if, if I frame one of those to make it work with that special aspect ratio. So you you mentioned a tilt shift lens earlier, and you have two chapters in your book about tilt shift lenses, and this is something that I've never really thought about. I mean, my cameras have that sort of toy effect filter, which reproduces one of the effects you get with a tilt shift lens, and it's a gimmick. But there's some really interesting stuff that you mentioned here with a tilt shift lens. So you said earlier that the first really wide angle lens you got was a tilt shift, but obviously you don't have to tilt it. So you can use it as a normal lens. In a couple of minutes, can you just explain to our listeners what the interest is in using a tilt shift lens? Okay, let me let me try to be very brief here, um, because I I could I could make this into an entire like episode. Um, a tilt shift lens is like it's like seven lenses in one. Uh, first of all, it is a very very good prime lens. If you have it in its zero position, not shifted, not tilted, it is a. These are the sharpest prime lenses out there, and uh, that's. That's one of the appeals. And then you get to correct perspectives. Just imagine you're standing in front of a building with a wide angle lens and the building doesn't fit in the frame. So you, what you would typically do is tilt back the camera and then everything starts falling and you get these weird angles and stuff that make it look weird. Um, with a shift lens, you get to shift, you get to shift the image circle and keep the, keep the lines parallel. So it looks very tidy, very neat. Um, you get to emphasize parts of the frame. Uh, by by shifting towards the edge of the image circle, I was talking earlier about the length of the legs that you could change. Uh, with a shift lens, you can exaggerate that. You can you can totally exaggerate that. Um, you can also do interesting things like make your camera disappear in a mirror. Yeah, you have a picture like that. You you have your Dracula, your vampire picture. My vampire picture. Uh, if you're st if you're standing in front of a mirror, let's say you're an interior photographer and you would have to photoshop your camera out because that's the way it is uh what you can do is you can sidestep but shift back so you end up not being in the frame and it looks like you were shooting this from straight in front of the mirror let me see you can you can enhance your panorama photography because when we do panorama photography with single frames and then stitch them together the the software has to do a lot of bending and fixing geometry in those pictures before it uh, it it puts them together what you can do is by shifting, you can have several parts of that panorama so they, they you won't even need a stitching software. You can just use Photoshop, put those photos on layers and put them on top of each other and they will fit. So no bending, no no inventing of pixels uh, that your software has to do. You, you have an example in the book where you've taken two photographs, one with the lens shifted upward and the other shifted downwards, and you just right. kind of slide them together and you'd still have to crop a little bit. But it looks like there's absolutely no distortion in the final photo. No. There isn't. There isn't. Um, and then the, that was the shift part and the tilt part of its tilt shift lens is allows you to change the focal plane. Like when you shoot with very shallow depth of field, often there is too much stuff out of focus or the wrong stuff out of focus and the wrong stuff in focus. And by by changing the way this focal plane is placed in 3D space, uh, you could, for example, in landscape photography, uh, where... Okay, if a landscape photographer wants to get everything in focus from front to back, you'd have to go with a very small aperture, f22 or something. Um, but that has its own problems. So tilting that focal plane means you you make that focal plane tilt forward so it coincides with the floor, with the ground. And uh, that will give you sharpness from 
the very front or the very back while shooting with a wide open aperture. So rather than doing focus stacking and stitching a bunch of pictures together... You, you... get it in one shot. Okay, that's interesting. Are, are tilt-shift lenses expensive? Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> okay, well, we'll <laughs> no. pass on that then. Well, um, I, I've already spent too much money on cameras this year. Well, you, you can get them used. Um, I, I get all my tilt-shift lenses used. Never bought a new one. Um, they are... It's probably the kind of lens that a lot of people buy to try out and don't do much with it and then end, end up selling because they didn't figure out how to use it. That is quite likely, yes. You mentioned that you took that lens with you on your Himalaya trip. Were you using the, the tilt-shift aspects of it, or were you just mostly shooting it sort of straight on as a wide-angle prime? I, I, used, uh, I used it mostly shifted. Um, I'd say 80% of the shots I took were had some, some, some amount of shift in them. And that is because if you shoot a wide-angle lens, the, the tilting of the camera and the, the, the resulting wonkiness of the, of the angles is, is pretty much your biggest problem. And you fix that by using the shift mechanism. Um, if you shoot with a longer lens, let's say a 90 millimeter uh, tilt sh shift lens, then with a 90 millimeter, you are more concerned with the focus. So you will do more tilting, but uh, in wide angle, yeah, shifting, um, is kind of the norm. And I'm a bit special when it comes to this because I have taught myself to use the tilt shift lens pretty much handheld most of the time where you will read often that you have to put this on a tripod and it's impossible to shoot this, uh, shoot this handheld. Um, I do it all the time and, uh, I've kind of developed my own style of making this very easy and quickly, uh, of making those changes kind of on the fly. Uh, it takes a bit of practice, but it just opened up so many possibilities for me. And uh, so, yeah, the answer is mostly shifted, yeah. Do you see differences between, like, a more traditional tilt-shift versus, like, a lens baby? Which is tilt-shift, but I don't think of it as the same sort of quality as a really dedicated tilt-shift. The, the, lens, the lens baby isn't really a tilt-shift lens. I mean, it does bend. It does uh, change the angle of the front lens. But okay. the way that uh, the lens baby works is that it... I mean, if, if you look in this technically, it's pretty much a not so good lens in there. It's a lens that has an, a very strongly curved, uh, field. Like the thing that touches the sensor is not flat. It's like curved. So the moment you start shifting that around, you will end up with just a spot that is in focus. And the, 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 the tilt lens would be not a spot, but more a line that is in focus. And, um, so I, I love my I love my lens babies. I have several of them. I use them, but I never use them for any any tilt shift like functionality. Yeah, that's uh, that's the impression that I've gotten. I I had a, like a very old uh, lens baby that you know f felt like you were dealing with some sort of you know a dentist headgear because of all the all the knobs <laughs> and everything. And I got it and I I played with it a bit, but. It just didn't stick, and I just want to make sure that that someone listening doesn't doesn't think, oh, well, here's this inexpensive lens baby. I can do tilt shift, but it seems like the lens baby is more for that effect rather than the the mechanical uses that you've mentioned. It, it, it's more to sh it's more for the effect to be visible. Whereas Chris, it sounds like what you're describing here is that using the tilt shift lens is removing the effect, is correcting the perspective, right? 
Well, you, you, yes, but you can also, of course, overdo you it. Can, I mean, yeah. this goes both yeah. ways, and that that is that is probably the thing that the tilt shift lens is most known for by most people is by overdoing that tilting, you end up with something that looks very akin to uh, macro photography because you, you you kind of simulate a very little, a very shallow depth of field. Yeah, that that toy or miniature effect. Exactly. And then when, when you are at the right angle, if you're shooting from, from an angle from above onto, let's say, a square with people on it or a street that's under you and you, you use this effect, it looks very much like you're trying to take uh, macro shots of insects and it feels for the, for the viewer, it feels very uh, miniature. Chris, thank you very much. This has been extremely interesting. Listeners, I'll remind you the book is called Wide Angle Photography from Rocky Nook. There will be links in the show notes. Chris, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, it's time to talk about our snapshots of the week. Jeff, what have you got? I'm going to bring up an app today called Raw Power. It's an app by the Gentleman Coders. There's an iOS app and there's also a Mac app. And it lets you edit a lot of raw specific features, like, for example, detail and tone, items that the raw sensor captures and can be manipulated before you get to some of your more standard, say, sharpening commands. What's interesting about these apps is they were developed by a guy who was on Apple's Aperture team and Photos team. And so it's very specific to raw editing, and it ends up being really powerful. How different is it from what you've done with other apps? Does it have a lot more features? It includes some some Apple-specific things, like it can, it can edit the depth maps that the iPhone 10 and the, the iPhone 8 Plus uh, both create. But it also has features that help you control your clipping and your highlights. And there's a boost setting that uh, Apple's RAW converters apply to RAW photos that, that add color and punch. And so you can have a little bit more control over that. Okay. That sounds interesting. Worth checking out. Yeah. Kirk, how about you this week? I have a book. It's a huge book. I'm lifting it up here to show Jeff. This is how Kirk gets his exercise. It, it is definitely. I could build up some muscles in my upper body with this. It's called The Photo Book. It's published by Faden Press. It is probably about six pounds. It's a large format book. It's about just under 600 pages. It is a book about the history of photography, and each page presents one photographer with one photo. It is in alphabetical order, so it starts out with photographers whose names begin with A. It starts with Hans Arsman and ends with John Zamboni or someone like that. What I found really interesting is that as I leaf through this book, I see plenty of photographers I'm familiar with. I see plenty of photos I'm familiar with, but I don't necessarily know the photographers, and this is the case particularly of things like war photos and news photos. And it covers the entire range of photography from the mid-19th century or late 19th century up to the present. I'm just to mention a few names as I leaf through it. Ralph Gibson, David Hockney, Richard Calvar, Dorothea Lang, Li Fung, Mark Hedda Lugachova, never heard of, Roger Main, Helmut Newton. It is an interesting way to get an overview of photography and see photographs by people you might not look for. You might not look for photographs by a lot of these people. Now, each photograph is not necessarily the best known photo by the photographer in question. 
but in many ways they are representative of the photographer's work. So this could be a good springboard for someone who wants to look into a number of photographers and, and check out books by different photographers. And you'll find, you'll see something that's interesting. There are a few paragraphs describing it. And then there are a few names, kind of like hashtags, names for other photographers you might want to check out. It's nice to leaf through. Uh, I think the A to Z format is a bit strange, but in some ways that works better than chronological because you're constantly shifting back and forth. It's not very expensive. I don't remember how much it costs, but it's nowhere near as expensive as it is heavy. So it's called The Photo Book, and it's by Faden Press, and link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. I'd like to remind you to check out The Photographer's Ephemeris. Follow the link in the show notes. Until next week, thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening.